Welcome everyone to a new episode of our In Check with FinTech podcast organized by Payments and Cards Network uh, and with your host Rogier Roep van der Voort. Um, with me today is Matthijs Korn. Matthijs, welcome. Thank you very much. Good nice to be on the show. We've been known each other for a long time. Uh, for at least seven years, so uh, it's good to finally have you on our show as well. Um, for those of you who don't know you, can you maybe give a bit of an introduction on yourself, uh, MGI Research, the company that you uh, that you work for? Um, go ahead. Yes, uh, Matthijs Korn. I've been in the world of payments, um, give or take, 15 years in all parts of the value chain. So uh, did work with merchants, worked with the schemes, with, with, uh, with MasterCard worked with some of some acquirers um, and did some work for various payment gateways and um, you know merchant of record type players typically business development strategy type work and now as you said with uh, with MGI research great MGI research what do you guys do so we're a boutique research and advisory firm founded um, just over 10 years ago by senior analysts from Gardner, Morgan Stanley and Soundview and, and, and Soundview was a Wall Street based arm of um, Gardner. We have offices in New York, San Francisco and Amsterdam. One of the things that we do is uh, ratings on various companies and, um, and the, 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 the thematic focus is on tech trends that are disruptive and durable. So we help our clients you know, make, achieve growth, we're very growth driven. Um, and durable, so long-term. So not short-term hypes, but long-term growth. I joined MGI in 2016, looking after the payments practice. Great, and you guys do ratings, trends, reports. You also have your own uh, events, right? Yeah, absolutely true, so twice a year. Um, so this year, March the 5th, was, the la- was our last event uh, thus far, and I think almost safe to say last event physically held here in Amsterdam, uh, in, 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 in downtown Amsterdam. Um, we were supposed to do one in April in San Francisco, of course that got cancelled. We're now looking at doing a digital one in, uh, in January. Um, and the theme uh, is always monetized, or the name is, 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 is monetized. And we have a concept called Agile Monetization Platforms. So we look at different baskets in the digital journey, how they work together and how they work together in order to achieve growth. Uh, a lot of people would refer to that as digital transformation, but yeah, we, we <laughs> Great, thank you very much. You're here today to uh, kind of discuss the biggest opportunities in payments. There's obviously many opportunities in payments, but we want to zoom in on two specifically. I think on the back of uh, two of yeah very recent developments that is now all over the news, uh, definitely within payments, but one of them also um, in the world. Uh, Wirecard is one. Uh, on the back of that, there's been an opportunity that uh, I'm keen to discuss, um, as well as um, on the back of the COVID pandemic. Um, let's start with Wirecard. I mean, there's a lot already said about Wirecard. Um, there's new news every day. The story seems to get crazier and crazier. Uh, maybe for those who have maybe missed that, have been on holiday or anything like that. Can you give a quick recap on the Wirecard situation? Absolutely, absolutely. Envy everybody who's listening now and who, and who has just been on holiday. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think the 30,000 foot um, first allegations of fraud at Wirecard in um, 2008, they were, um, they were quashed. I think they floated in 2005 on the German Stock Exchange. Um, 2015, there was a report by a group of people, uh, I think it was called the Satara Report, yeah. um, which was published in the Alpha Field section of the Financial Times. Um, 
that was the first sign of some very very aggressive PR by uh, Wirecard, who said, look, the, 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 these people have written the reports at the request of short sellers. This is just speculation, etc., etc." Fast forward to, I think it was January 2019, maybe it was late 2018, but thereabouts, and so a good year and a half ago from, from today. Dan McCrum in the Financial Times wrote a series of articles based on discussions with whistleblowers. Um, I think then the cat was out of the bag, so the Wirecard board and the supervisory board were challenged. and. Finally, in October 2019, gave KPMG, so the, the auditor of Wirecard is Ernst & Young, and they have been the auditor since, I think, 2008, but, but for many years. Um, KPMG did a report. report. report was published at the end of April. It was delayed once the report was published. They cited um, lack of cooperation by those needed in order to complete the research, and missing funds of at least a billion euros or more. So, so let's summarize that as the beginning of the end. The cat was out of the bag. Um, fast forward to, and then of course, in, 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 in a way it was over to Ernst & Young and, and Wirecard in order to complete the 2018 annual report, which had to be published by, I think it was June 19. So June 18 in the morning, Ernst & Young published the fact that they were not signing off on the annual report. Um, as cited missing funds of 1.9 billion, 1.9 billion euros, so a good two billion dollars. Um, and of course, the, the day after was the deadline for the annual report. And why did they need the annual report? There was a big revolving credit facility from a, from a group of banks, um, and as part of that revolving credit facility, uh, they had to publish an, an annual report by June 19. So. The stock crashed, I think it was 50-55% on that Thursday, it crashed another 30-40%, so it, it lost 90% in two days, and as of today, and so we're nearly two months further, or we're over a good six weeks further uh, from then, uh, the stock is, 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 is below two euros, it's been hovering there for a while. I think it's very unlikely now that um, it will, the company will be taken over as a going concern, We've seen some struggles in the UK with the FCA. Um, you know, everybody who had to get away, they probably had the chance to, to get away. Six weeks is, is a decent time to do that. So um, I think opportunity is fading there for why I can't continue as a going concern, but we'll see. Um, there were some reports in the beginning of, of many bidders and a lot of interest. It's been very quiet. What now comes out, of course, is mistake here, oversight there by Ernst & Young, all sorts of people, uh, often politicians who, uh, you know, best summarized as I told you so. Um, I think the German finance minister or, or uh, the relevant minister overseeing the bath in the German regulator was called to the parliament for a drilling last week. Um, at the European level, there's talk of more regulation. Let's see, I think more regulation uh, is to be expected uh, as, 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 as one of the outcomes. Definitely. Yeah, I think there's more and more news and, and call for on a European level for indeed more stringent regulation on that. Um, what happened happened. What do you think now looking forward will be kind of the, the, the backlash of this and what, what do you think will be the opportunity that comes with this? So, so I think every company should now look at um, 
So, in, in, so if you're a larger and, and particularly listed companies from um, and, and if you're active in payments, but payments is, is part of every every company strategy. Expect questions from your auditor. Um, it's revenue assurance. If your if your supplier goes down, do you have a plan B in place? So, I think. Um, make sure that there is somebody responsible for payments. Very often when we talk to companies and we ask them, do you have a payments director? Or when a supplier goes down, who is responsible? All too often that leads to eyes that can best be summarized as question marks. Mm -hmm. So make sure there is a payments head of payments or a payments director and make sure that payments is involved in writing the strategy. And very concrete, there is a concept called uh, payments orchestration that is now an interesting um, setup to look at for uh, for companies from a from a among others business continuity perspective. Let's look at that then. A payment orchestration. What what is it? Can you in, in kind of broad terms explain what, what payment orchestration? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So uh, so payments orchestration is is a relatively new term, but the concept has been around for for many years. You could even argue that it, build, it builds on what we call intelligent routing. Again, that's not new, but it's been used by large, usually cross-border, um, cross-border oriented merchants or larger merchants. And we now see increased availability of data taking this type of logic to, to the next level. Do you see that that's going to change for not just cross-border merchants? You said we used to see a cross-border merchant only. Do you think that's also going to be for maybe more national operating merchants? Yes. So I think what you'll see is that a pan-European operator um, also, and we'll, and we'll come to that later in more detail, but of course the whole COVID pandemic has, has shifted a lot of traffic online. So what you'll see is you'll have a, you'll, you'll have a central web store or a central e-commerce uh, setup. What you'll see is that the data is used to route a Greek shopper to the best authorizing acquirer in terms of cards. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's most likely a Greek bank um, uh, and a UK shopper to a UK acquirer. And you'll, uh, you'll offer the local um, um, alternative payment methods where applicable. Uh, so that's an ideal in the Netherlands. You'll show uh, carte bancaire or carte bleu in France uh, as an alternative. So you localize. And did you previously work with, a, with, a, with one central acquirer? There is now opportunity to do that um, with a local acquirer. So to really fine tune and optimize the authorizations. So it's basically working with multiple providers for one merchant. Absolutely, yes. Makes sense. All right, okay. How many providers do you see on average being used by any merchant? That's a good question. Um, a lot of people now will try to work with as few suppliers or as few acquirers as possible, and whether that's an acquirer or whether that's a gateway plus acquirer. Um, and through volume commitments, they get a very, very good price. I think that number will rise a little bit. I, as I said, the auditor will start to ask questions because of Wirecard and because of more traffic has moved online. So the dependence on that and the risk when it goes down is higher. Mm -hmm. So you'll need, you need, you'll need a plan B from a business continuity perspective. So, you know, is it two or three right now? It'll probably go up to a handful or even more uh, for the larger merchants. Uh, to do that, to, to, to get the coverage and to get the plan B in place. So besides that, um, kind of indeed from an auditing point of view, um, using payment orchestration, are there other things to take into account when considering this? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. So uh, other other benefits of going with payment orchestration is a faster go to market. So you can either build it yourself, so work with a white label gateway and connect what you need yourself, or you can work with a company that is set up and is offering payment orchestration services. And if you are then expanding into Latin or Africa or Asia, um, the last couple of months I've been getting a lot of questions uh, on can you help us with, with Africa, yeah, but take Latin, uh, South America as an example. Typically, those payment orchestration providers will be connected to two or three players there. So all you need to do is uh, get a contract in place, make sure obviously that your product pages are translated. In Brazil, you have the Boleto, which, which is a voucher. If you're in the subscription business, you, you might have to adapt um, the product somewhat to, to the Boleto rather than a card payment, but, the minim, but, but minimal um, localization effort. Uh, and away you go in this country. So it's, it's a very fast time to market. Uh, I've mentioned it before, business continuity. There is always a backup. The, um, the auditor will love it because if one player goes down, you, you can fall back to the other uh, and in reverse. And potentially, if there is enough volume, you could even play them out against each other uh, to get a better price. The optimized routing. Uh, using data, so I've used the example of you route a Greek card to a uh, to a Greek uh, acquirer. What we've seen in the past already is, of course, uh, in the, in the US you use a US acquirer, in Europe you use a European acquirer. You can now, with multiple acquirers, really start to optimize this um, and see kind of what's the flavor of the day and increase these auth rates also for fallback purposes. Um, at the beginning of this year, Checkout.com bought a French company which is focusing precisely on this, is using data to improve the authorization rates. But it can also be that for your commercial cards and your, um, um, so you read the bin tables, you see it's a commercial card, that you have a separate acquirer that offers level three and for P cards offers uh, digital invoices based on the, on, the, on, the, on the card transaction that you'll route it to that specific uh, acquirer so you service those clients who buy with a P card with an electronic invoice. So there's more than just alt rates uh, to this. Um, internal consolidation, we speak with a lot of large companies where it looks very good on the front end, but in the back end it's multiple gateways, multiple reporting, um, sometimes even confused clients who call the wrong service number, number for a refund. So by consolidating this, you'll have one set of reports. It's, it's a better consumer, um, customer journey and customer experience. Cost efficiency is also um, very often used. This is where um, I would say that's more a sales argument than a real argument. I think that overall payments orchestration is a break-even uh, setup. It improves your auth rates, which, which increases your top line, but you, you'll lose some efficiency, um, so you'll pay some higher fees and costs, and so efficiency some uh, economies of scales. Smaller companies may see some cost efficiencies, and larger ones probably see the costs rise, but they have business continuity under control, which is, is, uh, is a big tick in the box for them. So overall, I think it's a break-even story. What do you think the cost rise for these larger players? And is that for larger players only, or does that also apply for maybe smaller players? So overall, um, 
and, 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 we, and we touched on this before with, with, with Wirecard, regulation is getting stricter um, and costs are rising. Um, so, so that's one point where costs are rising. Um, typically, with, by using few vendors, you can do volume commitments and you can get a very good price because you agree on minimums or volume commitments or a certain minimum fee. These volume commitments, when you spread it out over multiple vendors or more vendors than, than currently, will probably reduce your negotiating power somewhat. So uh, you'll, you'll pay a little bit more. Uh, it's offset uh, by higher oil, oil rates. Um, and of course, that is, that is a game that ends at some time. Um, typically expect 1% to 2% better oil rates. I would say your costs go up roughly in the, in the same amount. Um, hence a break-even situation. I think smaller companies may benefit a little bit more by these alt rates um, because it was sub-optimized and by using a payments orchestration player, it's easier for them to get multiple uh, acquirers. Does a, does a payment orchestration player kind of uh, substitute for having a dedicated payments person within a company, would you say? Absolutely not, no. I think the payments person should manage that payments orchestration company and not as a supplier, but as a partner. Mm -hmm. And that's why I made the point earlier, be involved from a payments perspective in the strategy so that when you know, coming back to my example, you're going to expand into Brazil or into South America, that payments person can line up whoever is the, the, the payment gateway or the payments orchestration supplier, that everything is lined up from that end so you can meet the deadline of the, of the go live and that payments is not a stumbling block. I've seen many times that payments is the stumbling block in the go live because of a contract or KYC or you know something needed to be adapted in the setup. Um, so another reason to have payments be involved in, in, in strategy and product development. Makes sense. In the end, payments and need off rates and uh, high conversion is at the core of uh, many of it, many businesses. So I guess that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned checkout.com. I mean, are there the players in this field? Is that any operating or international PSP or are there specifically dedicated companies for this or do this? Um, you, 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 you see a mix and match. So we see some payments companies going in this direction. So Ingenico and Checkout.com are two examples. If you look at the classic Ingenico, the, uh, the global collect part, which was an acquirer agnostic network of acquirers, you could say that was payments orchestration aval a letter, and marketing and global collect failed to come up with that term, but that's how they were selling it. Um, Checkout.com is, is going in that same uh, direction. We see a new breed of companies like an Optile, uh, but also ACI through their pay-on uh, setup. You could argue uh, to a certain extent that a Pipro uh, with their alternative payment methods or a GoCardless with the international network of direct debit is a payments orchestration mm -hmm. uh, company. I expect more entrants. Companies like to check out Fastspring. They actually have this type of setup uh, since the inception. They rely heavily on intelligent routing. So for them, this could be a potential pivot or you know, adding to how they monetize their setup um, and they're strong in digital and recurring. So this could be an interesting addition for them uh, to go down this route. I've also seen pure play wide label gateways like a new gen or FSS or Spreetly enter this. So Spreetly has been around for a long time yeah. with connections to many gateways. 
they're now all of a sudden very vocal in uh, the payments orchestration uh, discussion and very good to, to see them there. Um, and I've mentioned digital, you can imagine uh, travel being a large international vertical, um, no doubt we'll see specialists pop up in the, in the travel space. Exactly, yeah. Sounds all pretty positive and, and uh, definitely an opportunity to be aware of. Are there any disadvantages to this as well? Things to be aware of maybe for merchants? I, I think what's very good to be aware of is uh, reporting and data flows. What you'll see is that every single acquirer always sends you a different set of data in a different format and some you need to collect it and some it's automated. So um, if you're into reporting, make sure that you work with a provider who actually normalizes uh, and standardizes the reporting for you so you don't have to do it yourself and that you don't get that mix and match uh, delivered kind of straight through processing because then you have to do all that translation yourself. I don't think that's anybody's hobby. Definitely not, no. So you, basically, ideally, you have one dashboard, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, exactly. And, then the, and, the, and, the, and the payments orchestration vendor works with the different acquirers or you know, alternative payment methods to have a unified set of reporting. So that's payment orchestration. Um, then uh, the other big happening that is going on right now is obviously the COVID pandemic. Um, what's the impact on payments as a result of that, you feel, and the opportunity there? So, a huge increase on uh, digital payments, so whether it be, uh, so basically the war on cash uh, has been accelerated. I, by and large, a lot of countries were already slowly but surely going, going cashless um, in the so-called cashless society. Even in Germany, you now see, as you, I regularly see all kinds of tweets, hey, I can now pay with a card at my bakery, etc., etc. Um, I have many war stories myself from being in Germany, and you know, my, my advice to people always used to be, look, before you travel to Germany, the last thing you do before entering Germany is make sure you have 200 or 300 euros cash. Um, even in February this year at the MPE, so probably the second last uh, conference uh, everybody attended face-to-face, uh, Sure enough, um, I took a taxi at the airport because it was a long time, um, it was tricky to get an Uber. Uh, I got in the taxi and sure enough, I asked the guy, can I pay with the card? I think in less than five seconds, I was out of the taxi um, because cash only. So even Germany entering uh, the digital era on uh, payments. Um, and of course, online, um, and we see all sorts of, and, and, and that, that was a trend that was going on, all sorts of acceleration of digital uh, invoices, uh, payment links, all, all that kind of stuff. Very strongly B2B uh, payments. So B2B payments is basically another opportunity that you see, I think specifically for businesses, right? Obviously there's an increased adoption in digital payments, hopefully cars, uh, but B2B payments, um, you see as a huge opportunity as well. It's, it's a huge opportunity. So we'll come to the size in a, in, a, in a little bit, but the key word in B2B is automation. Automation, of course, I think is the, is the key word of the outcome of many COVID uh, observation. Mm -hmm. um, and remove any manual intervention in any type of process, including payments. Um, regardless of, of where they're based, um, I've spoken to many companies in the, in the last three months Everybody you spoke with, finance was the exception to the working from home rule because either the systems did not function from home, so there was, so there was some type of security setup with an IP address, 
you had to be in the office to operate the system. Payment approval and the four-eyed principle in order to do a payment, whether that was a salary payment or to do a uh, supplier payment. It did not function uh, from home. You had to be in the office and approve, and then the next level had to approve. Uh, so people had to come to the office for that. And in some cases, um, in the US, uh, but also in the UK and France, you still hear that people sent checks to the office for supplier payments. So somebody had to collect those checks uh, and bring them to the bank to, to be processed. So all, and those are all things that can be automated uh, uh, and digitized. B2B payments is big, it's uncharted territory, and there are many elements uh, of the story, and, and, and many elements to the, um, uh, to the opportunity. Typical challenges in B2B are internal fraud, so think of invoice fraud, um, managing many suppliers and multiple open invoices, and multiple open invoices from the same buyer, of course, is credit risk. Many suppliers is your tail end, what you typically see is that the top 20% of suppliers are responsible for 80% of the spend. So the last 20% of spend is 80% of suppliers. And what you sometimes see is companies go for dinner with a department. That restaurant where they go for dinner once is onboarded as a supplier. Restaurant not happy. Waste of time for the company. You know, why, why not pay with a, with a corporate card, uh, for instance? You still have the control, um, and, and there's a lot of... Um, um, it, it makes it a lot easier if you have the right processes in place. Uh, but that's about managing suppliers. Open invoices, it's, it's accounts receivable. You will be surprised how many people do not know how much they are owed from actually the same 80, 20, 20% 20 of buyers is 80% of what they're owed. They are their customer's bank. Um, and we see a lot of reconciliation issues. So actually people have paid or they've only partially paid, but it's either reconciled or not. Um, and a lot of systems are being used. So the supplier will use a system, the buyer will use a different system. Comes back to what we just said about reporting. Um, everybody has the same data, but in a different system and different interpretation. So B2B is, is, is still very complex. A lot of friction in payment terms. And we don't like friction in payments, so a big opportunity to solve it. Exactly. So, so in very simple terms, whereas in B2C, if you and I would buy something online, uh, we'd obviously go to checkout, we'd pay with Ideal, Credit Card, Klarna, um, PayPal, whatever it is. Whereas in B2B, what is still happening a lot is that it's basically um, a, a paper invoice or a check, and in some countries it's more than in others. No. Um, what, what do you think the size of it is? So, um, like most people, I attended a lot of webinars during the lockdown, um, and one of the webinars from a very reliable party, so, and I know this, they, they always are very careful before mentioning numbers in public, so um, I'll quote their numbers. They came up with the total B2C market globally as being 60 trillion US dollars, and the B2B market is 120 trillion wow. uh, US dollars. So it, it's twice the size of uh, B2C, which, which is something I've heard many times previous, but 120 trillion dollars is what companies buy from other companies. And if you look at um, B2C, roughly 60, 70% globally is paid with a card. As you rightly said, here, that varies country by country, particularly here in Europe, cards is less and, and there's more alternative payment methods, but globally, 
you come to 60-70% cards. In B2B, it's only 2% cards, and the rest is predominantly bank transfer. And of course, with the bank transfer, you come to um, um, what we said before, um, the reconciliation issues, if people don't include an identifier, uh, they could transfer it to their own account, there could be fake invoices, um, so there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of issues. And the 2% actually rings home, that is a number that is always used as a back of an envelope number, that 2% of a company spent is on travel and entertainment, which is typically done on a corporate card. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Um, what kind of initiatives do you see in B2B at the moment? Again, I think it's probably a lot, like you said, around automation, right? It's, it's, it's all about automation, and you see two sides of the story. So when you sell something um, that's measured by days, sales outstanding, so you want to keep that as, as low as possible, yeah, and, and that eventually, if it goes beyond the payment terms, it becomes accounts receivable, mm -hmm. yeah, but, but you want to keep that... Uh, you want to keep that as low as yeah. You want to keep the number as low as possible, and for, and for the money going out, so paying suppliers, that is DPO, days payable, outstanding, and that you want to be as high as possible, or at least higher than than DSO. Otherwise, you are financing uh, financing yourself. Yeah. Can you, can you make it a bit more tangible? Maybe give an example of this. Yeah, sure. So. Um, so 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 yeah. So let's so let's look at what what, what people are doing. Um, they're trying to remove friction from the process. So um, on the accepting side, you see that um, so message word or money word here in the Netherlands, I think is a good example. Include a payment link in an invoice that you send out, so you make the paying easier and faster. Accepting cards, uh, setting up a web shop. So setting up a web shop kills two birds in one stone because you can only order when you pay, so there is no more invoice and uh, payment terms, etc. You actually also make your company self-service because people go to the web shop. And many people think, oh, it's B2B, people want to call me. I have a relationship with these people. Constantly, when you ask buyers, more than 50% will say, can you please remove the sales, and particularly the salespeople, from the process? It's all unnecessary questions, etc., etc. So. Um, that is great. Then I think the next step in that is dunning. So mm -hmm. that's chasing invoices, uh, etc. Um, we see, I've mentioned that before, BlueSnap, uh, or I mean Moneybird, but also BlueSnap, they've actually done uh, integrations with specific dunning vendors in order to get the money faster and, and bring that DSO down um, and ideally bring it down to zero or a, or a day. Um, think of a company that's selling um, something like 10 million to 12 million, so let's say roughly a million a month, and imagine the payment terms are 30 days. Mm -hmm. If you reduce that by five or six days by simply getting paid faster on average, 20% means you have 200k in the bank that you didn't have before, that's basically working capital. Um, and, and, and because you work with a 30-day payment terms, you'll most likely need to borrow money in order to go through those 30 days, particularly in the beginning. Yeah. So bringing your DSO down and having that 200k in the bank, you, you know, you can either bring your debt down or you can use it. Um, uh, you can use it to hire a new marketing person, a new salesperson, um, whatever it is. 
but it, 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 it can help you grow faster. The ROI is huge. The ROI is, 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 is very big. Yeah. What about accounts payable? So accounts payable is the, is the other side. Now, uh, of course, it, it, it becomes very, very tempting to make that very, very uh, long, but don't forget, your DSO is somebody else's uh, DPO, so um, you don't want to be your supplier's bank. So I think there is a moral obligation to have DPO, you know, not at 90 days uh, or something like that. Um, and here, here it gets very interesting. Imagine if that same company as before, they now need to pay suppliers roughly 600k of revenue um, in, in accounts payable. In the classic way, that money is wired or they send a check after at least 30 days because their payment terms are typically 30 days because they need the money coming in before they pay it out. And um, typically, there is a very slow process in accounts payable called procure to pay, which, um, uh, which takes time. So suppliers wait 30 or more days um, to get their invoices paid. You get a little bit of a vicious circle there. So somebody somewhere needs to finance uh, that gap. So we're seeing a lot of traction here by companies like Cabbage, but also the banks to a certain extent. Um, and we see a new breed of companies that are paying all their accounts payable. When they come in, they immediately pay it or, or within two or three days. They do that on a card. Typically, um, it's a single-use virtual card. Sometimes, sometimes they use a card on file. And if there is a credit line from the bank, and even on a standard corporate card, there is a, uh, there is a credit line. So you get, on average, 45 days uh, to pay that. So you create working capital against very low uh, or marginal costs. In the ideal situation, the reduced D, uh, DSO and by paying the accounts payable very quickly, so very low DPO as well, they can ideally eliminate the, the need for any financing or working capital financing and even bring a rebate on that card volume uh, in the account payable, making account payable a profit center uh, or pay for itself rather than a cost center. Where it gets really, really interesting is, um, for instance, in media buying uh, agencies, if they pass through um, all the accounts payable, so think of, of media uh, buying, which these days is, is Facebook, Google, uh, these types of ads, Twitter ads, mm -hmm. um, they can really, it, it, it can really be a profit center to do all of that on a card. And interestingly enough, these virtual cards actually generate even more data and we come back to the theme of data, creating a richer dashboard um, for ROI purposes. And it all plays to automation because you're, you're, you're completely automating uh, all these processes. Uh, so the dumbing is not done by hand and a phone call is done with an email or a text message. Uh, the accounts payable, it's sent to a central address. When that vendor is recognized, it immediately pays that invoice. Interesting. So the technology is definitely there. Is, is it only technology, you think, or is it also a change in mindset or maybe education? Or? It's very much, very much mindset and culture uh, uh, to do so. And, um, and of course, actually, and we, we spoke about regulation making things more expensive. This is also due to some regulation making it possible for these fintechs to be regulated and issuing these cards without or with a, with, with a very limited amount of, um, of credit 
in a way, this intermediating the traditional banks who had a monopoly uh, on this type of lending or on lending in general. Yeah, exactly. Is this the end, you think? This is definitely not the end. No, 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 no. So there is a whole range of fintechs. Um, for instance, they're offering, they have the ability to offer an IBAN. So um, again, due to regulation, and that was a monopoly held by the banks. There is now various countries where that is relatively easy. And of course, with an IBAN, you basically have a bank account. So you could have, let's say, your, um, your payment processor settles in their own IBAN. And you can use an IBAN to pay suppliers, to top up your card. So you create uh, a little ecosystem, and particularly for cash-rich companies, there may, not, there may no longer be a need to have a traditional bank uh, underneath their whole setup. Um, if you look at companies like Stripe and Agen, they're very active in this. And, um, there, uh, you have Enet and Wex who have done this uh, in the travel years ago, and we now see uh, uh, Stripe and Agen taking this broader. And it's a very interesting uh, business case. And you can use it to uh, for collateral, right? For a loan as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Good, good. Yeah, good cash. So actually, the incoming money in your merchant account is the collateral for typically a short loan. Um, it could be a couple of days. It it, it could be forty five days. Um, and if that's used to top up um, a card to do accounts payable, yeah, you you make the money sweat. Uh, and as I said, you typically get a rebate over that volume. It could be a very worthwhile uh, business model. This is what many of the online travel agents do as well. They use these virtual cards, and on the one hand, they get a rebate. On the other hand, they use the data to better manage uh, their operations. So it's centralization, it's increasing efficiency, it's faster payments. Automation. Automation, data as well. Uh, exactly, lo lo exactly lo lots of data. Yeah, exactly. Data seems to be uh, at the core of this uh, podcast today for both opportunities. Uh, Completely, yes. Uh, thanks, Matthijs, that, that was very insightful. Um, if people want to find out more, we I'm sure you have a lot more to talk about this as well as other opportunities. Where can they find you? Uh, always keep the best to last, so um, make sure there is uh, people listening to the next podcast, so to speak. No, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Matthijs Korn, or on Twitter at Korn Matthijs. Exactly. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to, uh, to reach out to Matthijs. I'm sure he's keen to, uh, to hear from you. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show, and um, here you next time.